This is Bert. This is Charlie. This is Dietrich. And we are the Techno Feudal Lizards. You know, here we are. Uh, you know, our comeback episode, George Sullivan, class 2007. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm a little bit uh, a little bit anxious to see where this conversation goes. Yeah, we need to bounce back after. Yeah, we do need to bounce back. Yeah. So we'll bounce back now. We will. Great. So, uh, are you? Uh, is it true that uh, that Dinger was a classmate of yours? That's true. Did you have a good relationship? With actually, actually we can't talk about this. We can't talk. We can't talk about teachers. Dude, right, well, what are we allowed? That, to that part will be cut about. out. That'll part. Ah, oh, dumb question. Um, <laughs> All right, I, I got one. I got first one. Thing. Yeah. Uh, what's it like coming no back? Teachers. What's it like coming back as a teacher after being a student here? Like your relationship with all the teachers? Yeah, it, it's funny. Um, I, I I think I'm a little different than some of the teachers. Where like, I worked in like not in teaching for a while, and then I taught somewhere else for a while, and then I came back. So it's not like like Mr. Bracken came back literally after being at Yale. So, um, it is weird. I allegedly broke Butts's rib my senior year and also Cappy's rib. Mm. So that, like, those are both my colleagues now. Can you tell that story? Oh, sure. Sure. So, uh, I don't know. I was just a menace. I, I, I like to wrestle with kids on campus a lot at the time. Mm. Um, and so I think it was, it was like senior spring and, but uh, was teaching me in physics and it was like one of the only classes I had at that point. And so I decided I was going to like prank him by like surprising him and hiding in the classroom and then like kind of just like fake like tackling mm-hmm. him. And so I, I did that and I like picked him up and put him in a bear hug and then his rib like kind of popped. Hmm. It was, I think, yeah, was I think it awkward I'm... after when he was like actually hurt? <laughs> kind of, but like he was trying to play it off like he wasn't hurt. And so he went down to see uh, Mr. Doherty, who was the trainer at the time. And he was like, well, if you're, you know, if it had impinged on your lungs, then yeah, you'd probably be say. dead already. So you're probably <laughs> fine. What um, uh, What's your greatest memory of Belmont Hill? Oh, man. I mean, th- there were there were some pretty, pretty special ones. We had uh, the, the loop was pretty electric my senior year. I was I was the blue man. And um, we played BBNN in this game where like they a thousand percent like took fire hoses out and soaked this grass field because we had Corey Gatewood who played at Stanford, who was just Jeez. phenomenal. Uh, Danny Williams who played at BC. We, we were like the fastest, like most talented team in, in New England. And we won the New England championship. But we were down against uh, BBNN in the fourth quarter. And Alex Angler, the quarterback, who went on to play at Middlebury, threw up this horrible pass <laughs> for her, for Mark Vockmeister, who was my best friend, who uh, it was terribly underthrown. And this BBNN kid goes up to pick it, and it bounces off his hands right into my, my buddy's arms, and he just, like, sprints into the end zone. And I think he was probably on, like, the 30-yard line when the loop starts storming the field. And there's, like, minutes left in the game. <laughs> it was <laughs> wild. And so, like, flags are everywhere. It was just mayhem. They were like, are we going to spot the ball back? So they end up ca- they, they count the touchdown. But we, we, we were going to go for two. And uh, I think we ended up kicking the extra point instead because we were, like, 40 yards away from the end zone at that point with all the penalties. Um, so so that was just wild. Um, and I don't know. Like, like, we won... Uh, we, we tied for the ISL championship in lacrosse that year, but it was anticlimactic because we didn't have a tournament at the time. So it was yeah. like we, we found out after we beat 
like BBNN on the last week, which was, you know, they were terrible. So yeah. we beat them like 15 nothing, and, and then it was like, oh, Govs happened to lose, so we tied. So, so G-Soul, is there a, uh, a senior or it could be any student in the school that, uh, that, you, that you see yourself in? There's someone that's you look a good at question. and you're like, is that, that, that's a young G-Soul right there. Uh, man, I don't know. I was a menace. Yeah, hard Were to say. Were you really that much of a menace? I can't really picture that. Yeah, yeah. Butts, <laughs> Butts jokes with me a lot that the only time I, I am like my former self is when I'm on the sideline of the lacrosse field. And I'm yeah, you do get nuts. fired you do, Yeah, you do kind I, of seem I, like, I, a, like a reformed menace, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, I, I still yeah. have my moments, yeah. but I'm trying to think. I mean, th- there's like shades of a lot of different people. Like, yeah. like Romney's just complete refusal to do anything yeah, that yeah. is productive yeah. or um, in his own best interest this year has been like pretty well aligned with how I was my <laughs> senior year. That, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. We had him on the podcast and he was, uh, he was saying some pretty crazy stuff and yeah. I did not expect it at all. That sounds about right. Yeah. I know you and Ethan have a love hate relationship. Do sure. you see any of yourself in him? Uh, not really. No, he, he is, uh, way more talented of a lacrosse player than I ever was. And so, like, that's that's different. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard, yeah, because, like, literally, I would I would just, like, grab ninth graders in the middle of, of the quad and start wrestling them. Hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know that anyone's doing that these days. I see you're wrestling Ethan a lot. Would you feel bad if you broke his rib? Not particularly. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you you try to move on me yesterday, and I will admit it was pretty violent. Yeah, I asked Jisal yeah. what his uh like what his go to takedown move was. I don't know; it's just interesting. And he like puts me in some like triple like <laughs> leg choke lock. I'm like Jesus! Like, I, would I, you I, beat Jimmy Harrington? I'm a lot bigger than him, but I don't know. Jimmy's freaking tough. Yeah, he's 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 just like the most disciplined wrestler that I, I don't know that we've had come through here. I mean, Phil was super talented. Just like the most athletic kid you've ever wrestled against, but but Jimmy's super super disciplined. So I, I don't know. We'll we'll have to we'll have to test that one out. Maybe. I think you'd beat him. I, f- I feel like Ethan's counting down the minutes until he graduates, so he can like take his shot at me, and I, I literally can't wait. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fantastic. To be honest, Jisil, I think you are the most fit thirty two year old I've ever met. Thank you. Like you are the most in- like how, ma- how many thirty two year olds have you met? Now that I think about it. Not that I don't know. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Bar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you do manage to like, like I, I always see you at wrestling practice, like running. Is that something that's really important to you? Yeah. Yeah. You like to keep fit. I do. Um, I, honestly, I, I think of it more as like capability than anything else. Um, I do. I do. Or I guess I used to do a lot of outdoor stuff. I, I haven't done as much kind of since COVID, but um, I, I went down and did some climbing in Peru. Um, I, I've climbed out west a bunch and being able to do that stuff is, is important to me. So yeah, like for like a lot of you know a lot of older people work out. You know everyone works out, but like you like I see you do like high intensity stuff, which is like typically when people stop playing sports, which is like you know around the end of high school or end of college or you know wherever it may be, they just stop doing high intensity stuff. They just you know lift weights or yeah. do whatever they want. So yeah, I'll yeah, tell you a stat see. line that surprised me. Didn't you say you're only five years off, uh, like graduating from with Mr. Sullivan? Like you guys have five years apart from when you guys graduated. Is that? I think that's right. Tim Sullivan. Yeah, it, it might. It might crazy. be crazy. So I graduated Williams twenty eleven. I can't remember. 
if he was oh one or oh six. But we are we're on the same Very reunion different. cycle. So it's either five years or ten years. I don't know which. Huh. Five would seem way yeah, crazy, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I mean, said he, that to me and Tom. I was like, he's not he's no not that way. old. He's in his forties. I, I think he's like, what did he say? If, if, so, well, so if you do, so I'm 33, so maybe he's yeah. 43 and that would be, so he would have been 2001 maybe. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. I don't know. Was he here when you were here? No, he came, I want to say either the year after I left or a couple of years after he coached my little brother. Huh? Who was 2011 from here and then 2015 from Colgate. Are there any teachers that were there when you were there? that you feel like are really missed on the Belmont Hill campus? Oh, yeah. I mean, did, did you guys interact with Jim Brody ever? No. Just, like, so eccentric, like an absolute legend. He, he used to just, like, stand, stand on the side of all of our games and, like, yell things that were completely different than what our coaches were saying, <laughs> and it was hilarious. He was, like, the funniest, um, most eclectic dude on campus. What did he teach? Uh, he taught English. He, he would, like be in class and, and I loved him in class. He was one of my favorite teachers. And immediately after class he would go and like hit up I, I think I, I don't know if it was in here or it was it was nearby to here. I don't remember exactly, but there was like the, the teacher smoking lounge. And he would just like beeline it for there after every class. <laughs> it's amazing. So yeah, like, I I don't know. I, I just feel like for for better or for worse, the the faculty is like pretty put together. And, yeah. like, I feel like back in the day there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, more eccentricity in the faculty that yeah. was actually kind of awesome. Yeah. yeah. We, we have a lot of younger people. We, we definitely do still have some there characters. There still is a lot of character. We I have a lot like. of characters. Yeah. yeah. I feel like especially in the math department. <laughs> Mr. Sweeney, Mr. Martellini. Yeah. I've never had any of them. Really? Yeah. I've had, uh, well, I don't know. We're not going to get into specific teachers. But, yeah, I don't know. I haven't had I a very... Know broad range of math teachers but the teachers I have the teachers I have had have had a lot of character uh Gisol, um without mentioning names um who was the worst student you ever had don't mention names but uh, d- describe stu- the yeah, worst student yeah. I've ever had was there ever an experience you had with a student where you're like there's not like that's at, at Belmont Hill or in general um what do you, I guess we, if we, it's anonymous, I think in general. Yeah, I think in general. Yeah, we can go in general. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, so I used to teach seventh grade history. Yeah. And that was the only class yeah. I taught. And and that was electric. I mean, there there were kids who would like build forts of books to hide the fact that they were like playing games in class. And I'm like, hmm. you know, I know you're playing games yeah. right now. Um but I don't know. Like I mean, part of it is that there's so many different ways to think about, like, what makes a terrible yeah, student. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you just don't do any work, that's one thing. If you, like, are not that bright, that's another thing. If you are actively disruptive, that's, that's like, the worst. I think, yeah, Which is, which is how I was, which yeah. is how I know, like, when I'm dealing with a student who's actively disruptive, I'm like, this is penance. This is, this is karma. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, that that's, that's I would say, the hardest to deal with is, is like, when when kids are yeah. just actively like yeah, foiling like, all yeah, of your best yeah. plans. Yeah, it's one thing if a kid like doesn't do his work or you know right. is you know doesn't understand. It's like whatever. That's it sucks for the kid, but a kid that's actively disruptive can ruin a whole class. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really interesting, like that a lot of the teachers I that came to... from Belmont Hill had like pretty not bad experiences, but 
you, Connie, both probably weren't the best students in the class. Sure. And you guys come back, and it's almost like you guys can relate with the kids. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is really good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do think that's part of it. I mean, frankly, that's part of why I want to teach is I feel like for whatever reason, I I mean, I obviously love Belmont Hill. This place is super special to me, but I, I feel like I wasn't always able to connect with what I was trying to do in school. Um, I, like I was uh, the nerdiest reader you can imagine when I was a little kid. I, I used to read relentlessly. And then by the time I graduated here, I was like, I'm not reading anything. Like, even if you ask me to, I'm like, I'm not doing it. Um, and I think as educators, that's something we need to think about. It's like if, if kids are totally checked out and burned out by the time they're graduating high school, like I, I, I think we envision high school as a launching pad rather than like kind of wearing you down to the point where you like eventually dribble off into college. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I just think as we think about how to do our jobs well, that's that's something we have to deal with is the fact that, you know, you guys are so overprogrammed and stressed in a lot of cases that by the time you're leaving here, it's like, yeah, I'm like pretty ready to be gone. It's like, you know, we, we want it to be that way at some level, but, uh, you know, at the same time, we, we want to inculcate that love of learning and of, of um, interacting with interesting things. And, and, you know, I think this podcast is a great example of this, something that's new for you guys that you guys are branching out into. That's fantastic. Yeah, I feel like that's definitely an important part of senior year. There there have definitely been kids where you can see that they're just sick of, like, being told what to do, especially with, like, busy work. Yeah. A lot of the second half of senior year is all busy work. Seems like we could have a, a better program to set up kids, like, to find what they're actually interested in and, like, what they actually want to pursue before they just get thrown into the college world of figuring it out there when you're all alone. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's it's. I mean, that's no, it's normal to find out what you want to do in college. I mean, you shouldn't. I don't think. Yeah, I but I think, think at Belmont Hill, you can find we have the resources to help kids at least have an idea going in. Yeah, I guess. I of guess a, a few things. I mean, I think everyone has ideas, but I think I'd be, I don't think that's true. I don't know. What do you mean? I don't know. I feel like a large portion of the grade has no idea, and in turn, will probably end up in like finances just because yeah. it makes money which i don't necessarily think is a good thing yeah well and a lot of it is experimentation right you, yeah. you like try different things and it, i mean frankly i think a common belmont hill experience is that you don't really have opportunities to experiment because you're you know playing two sports and and playing for club teams in in high school so you don't have a ton of free time you go to college and if, if you don't play a sport in college you've got free time like you don't even know what to do what to do with and if you're a d1 athlete you've got two a days literally the whole year and in any of your free time you're just doing work and your summers like if you're a football player in college like you're you're going to have summer training and you're not really going to be able to get an internship so for a lot of athletes it's actually to your point cave it's it's like really hard to figure out what it is you want to do because you just don't have opportunities to experiment in the ways a lot of other kids do and so i think that's something that's you know, if we can provide, I mean, we're, we're, we're a school of student athletes and if we can provide some of that opportunity in, in senior year, I think that could be super important. What was your experience like in the financial world? I, I liked it a lot. I mean, it, it's interesting. The, uh, there, there's, there's so much that's encapsulated in finance that, that kind of gets brushed over. So I, I did commercial real estate banking, which is commercial banking. It wasn't like, 
um, as intense as the, the the classic eye banker role where you're like, you know, putting in 20 hour days in the yeah. office. So yeah. I, I love the people I worked with. Um, I, I really liked, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. So, so learning something new was actually really cool for me um, and figuring out how it all worked. But, you know, it, it, ultimately what I was doing was basically helping big REITs and institutional funds. So like big real estate owners buy up more real estate so that they could pass on a dividend to their investors, which like, it's it's not exactly what you'd want written on your gravestone. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah, like yeah, like if you think about legacy and you've got the choice of of what you choose to do with your time, um, I, I'd I'd rather do something that I find more meaningful. And so that's kind of I, I tried to get in the military for a long time, and then uh, when that didn't pan out, I ended up um, in teaching. So was that the inflection point? Was there any point where you're just like, this is not for me, or was it kind of just like, kind of you know? faded away and you were just like this, I'm not interested in this anymore. No, it was, um, the, the inflection point was actually getting rejected from uh, an application into the army. Um, so, uh, that was, I want to say like 2014. Um, so I graduated college 2011 and, and had a bunch of concussions in wrestling. And so I, uh, was, was applying to get in the military, but at the time they had a policy that you had to wait two years until your uh, like after your most recent concussion to re to reapply. And so I reapplied two years later and, and, and that was, uh, whatever it was like winter of 2013 and got rejected. And then that summer I, uh, transitioned into teaching. Yeah. So that was, that was basically the inflection point. Hmm. Was it, I mean, so did those, did your military aspirations come out of nowhere or was that kind of something that was built up, you know, you know, across your life? Definitely, uh, the latter, um, especially coming from Belmont Hill, where, where we've got such a tradition of, of uh, veterans and of, of appreciation for the military here. That was something that was super important to me. Um, and, you know, as, as a wrestler, as, as kind of as we talked about earlier, like I, I care about challenging myself uh, physically and mentally. And so that was really appealing. Doing that in a way that also allowed me to serve was a no-brainer. But, yeah. Hmm. What's a life lesson that you learned the hard way? Oh boy. Uh, well, I'm trying to decide how philosophical I want to get here. You know me. Um, I think an important life lesson is realizing that you are ultimately the author of your own book, which is to say that there, there's no one who can tell you what you have to do. There's, there's no narrative you have to follow. And for, for me, I, I was a wrestler and I saw myself as a wrestler and that's who I was. And then when I got to college, I got some concussions and like couldn't wrestle. And I, I literally didn't know what to do with myself. Um, and so that, that kind of lesson that I learned was, was that I could be whatever I wanted to be. Um, and, and that the, the pressure of like having gone to Belmont Hill and to go and do something wildly successful, like that doesn't, that, that's, that's an idea. It's not grounded in reality. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, you know, again, without getting too philosophical, I, I think that really taking the um, perspective that you you actually have a huge degree of flexibility in navigating how you take advantage of opportunities, how you live your life, that's one of the most important lessons I learned. So yeah, that was actually a point, um, you know, that Gavronsky, that, you know, Gavronsky was making about, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, he said that he sees me, you know, as a football player. And I was talking about how, 
you know, that's kind of like a false perception. I, you know, while I do play football, it's kind of not what I want my identity to be. And I was, you know, being like, well, I see you as a wrestler. Um, in retrospect, if you got to go back in time, would you um, put less effort, you know, into wrestling and maybe diversify, uh, you know, whatever you're doing? Yeah, you no. kind of talked about how it, you know, can have a negative effect because it can kind of restrict you. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, no, no, I, I wouldn't have done any of that differently. And again, I think that there is, there's a couple of approaches you can take. One of which is if you kind of like where you ended up, it's, it's hard to go back and change those things because they're, they're part of what made you who you are. The other is, is like, I, I love wrestling. Um, and what, what led me to identify in that way was the fact that I was super passionate about that and I wouldn't change anything about that. I had this moment my, my senior year where I'd, I had had a concussion in wrestling and th- this was kind of before we had as, as established procedures as we have now. And I had to make a decision as to whether I wanted to like keep on wrestling in this tournament and, and be an All-American for the first time or, or stop. And uh, I decided to keep going and, and that kind of was part of what spiraled me into these concussions I had my, uh, in my freshman year at college. But like I wouldn't change any of that both because, like I talked about, those concussions were formative for me and because, you know, that that was a pivotal moment in my career and my life. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Not to change the subject, but um, if there was one class that you could teach, you know, make and teach, what would it be? Yeah, yeah, philosophy in a heartbeat. Um, I, I think that ultimately there's a lot of different approaches for figuring out what you want to teach. Uh you know, I, I think it's important to teach what you know, and and you know, in as much as I was a poli sci major, and I've I've you know taught some economics classes here, I, I think that most of what I spend my time thinking about is kind of the international security stuff we talk about in, in my advanced econ class, and thinking about what constitutes a good life, and helping kids think about that is something I would be super passionate about. Did you study philosophy at all at Williams? A little bit. But most of it's kind of been informal, just kind of reading books and, and trying to create a curriculum for myself. So you're obviously familiar with the trolley problem because we've talked about it a lot. Oh, um, I love it. Yeah. For those that don't know, um, the problem basically involves a hypothetical train that's going straight down a track. And on the track, it's on course to essentially run over five hypothetical workers that are tied down to the tracks. But you're on the side of the tracks and you have the option to switch rails and instead guide the train to a separate track with only one worker tied down. So that's that's sort of the scenario, and you're the one pulling the lever. Um, Mr. Sullivan, what would you do in that case? Well, I mean, I think you have to add a little more context. I mean, because obviously there you go with the one. They're just both workers. Well, no, but you have to isn't proactively. One, isn't one of them like a group of prisoners? They're convicts. No. Well, so no. there are a lot of different iterations of the trolley yeah. problem that try well, yeah. to play with that dynamic, right? It's, it's you know, uh, uh, one child versus five adults. Yeah, okay. Right? It's actually a really interesting way to attenuate and, and kind of explore our moral sensibilities. It's like what would change that calculus for us? Um, but, yeah, I mean, to, to me, I, I do utilitarianism, which is the idea that, like, you should – kill the one person instead of the five uh, it is, is certainly appealing from a number of standpoints. I mean, obviously, you, you've got to do something. And, and the idea of inaction as morally uh, okay, so the idea that you would let five people die and that's better than killing one person, 
that that to me doesn't hold up to scrutiny. So I, I think you, you kind of have to flip the switch in as much as there's a certain cost to doing so. Hmm. What's your favorite problem of that kind? Oh, like, like philosophical kind. problems? Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm a huge fan of thought experiments. But, but yeah, I, I, I think the ones that like the trolley problem get at your, um, your, your sense of, of justice and morality and, and some of which is culturally encoded. I like to think some of which is, is universal is really interesting. There's this, uh, there's this short story, which is really just an extended thought experiment by Ursula Le Guin uh, called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And it, it, you know, we'll give the categorical spoiler alert here, but it basically tells the story of this utopian city in which in some basement um, there's a kid who lives in absolute filth and is, is uh, you know, treated terribly and there's this sense that the, the prosperity of Omelas is in some way connected to the misery of this kid, almost like they're polar opposites, which uh, are, have a causal relationship. Um, and so the question is, like, if you could live in a society like that, uh, that was perfect, would you accept it if you knew that it was based on something that was evil? And those types of problems, I think, are, are ultimately important for our sense of morality how we want to build our societies. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think? What, would you guys stay in Omelas if you knew it was I mean, ultimately I think, what, what corrupted? You, what, uh, I don't know. I guess you'd have to define, define evil a little bit more. Is it like this kid's getting tortured or is he just kind of like you know, living in squalor? What, what's, the, what's the breaking point for you? What would cause you to leave in the treatment of this kid? So, I don't know. I think, um, I don't know. If it's just one kid, I don't think anything would cause me to leave, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I guess the nature of his abuse is important. You know, if it's like, you know, someone's going down and, like, messing with him or torturing him or he's just kind of, you know, living to his own Are devices. You, so if you live here, you're aware of this kid's right situation? But it's not immediately clear that leaving would change anything about yeah, that situation, leaving, right? Yeah, it's, to be it's honest, not going to make him better I'd off. Have, I'd have zero issue living in that utopian society. Yeah. Well, to a certain extent, we already do that here. How like, so? We have a life of privilege when we know on the, somewhere in the world on the opposite end of the spectrum, somebody is being tortured and living in what you said, squalor. Right. So, I, mean, I guess, yeah, but I don't know. You can't really make the argument here that that kind of, you know, feeds into that's kind of what gives us our life of privilege, which makes it a little bit more difficult. You know what I'm saying? Sure. It's harder you know, to establish world, that relationship. It's, it's difficult right? to, you know, correlate those things. But right. I mean, honestly, even if you could, I, what are you going to do? But that, the, the whole point of the story is basically trying to get at that sense of, of utilitarian justice where – it's just one kid and everyone else is living in absolute bliss. And like from, from a moral calculus, if you're just applying a utilitarian framework, it's like, yeah, you're good. But, you know, depending on the treatment of the kid, there, there's, there's something in that, that that speaks to our moral sensibilities that makes us want to reject it. And, and to, to me, the, again, utilitarianism is a useful framework for making decisions like that. But ultimately, there's, there, there are other moral sentiments out there that are, that are important. So, you obviously know what this podcast is named. Yes. Um, 
And you also know that Bert to my left here is writing his final econ paper about techno-feudalism. What does that mean to you? Uh, the, the, the presence and, and kind of cultural idea of techno-feudalism or, the, or the, the idea itself, like the, the idea that we're heading towards a techno-feudalist society? I think both. Okay. Uh, well, so, so one is like how real is the threat of, of kind of trending towards, you know, that type of society? Maybe, maybe let's kind of define it first. It's, it's basically the idea that because of the concentration of uh, economic and political and social power that happens as technological networks connect all of us more and more intimately, um, those power laws that dictate why um, – Let's just say LeBron James is such an all-star. You know, if, if LeBron James were just as talented as he is, but he was playing in a, in a small league in, in Eastern Europe, you know, his cultural significance would be way less. But because he's televised not just nationally, but internationally, et cetera, his, his stardom is, is far greater. Uh, the uh, economic gains that accrue to, I don't even know what team he's on at this point, but whoever he plays for, um, you know, all of that, it, you know, ultimately ends up in his salary. Um, and so the idea is like Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos or whoever other of these tech giants or, or, or you know, influencers um, will have a greater and greater role to play in determining our, our narratives, our political decisions, et cetera. Um, you know, how, how real a risk is that? I, I think it's, it's probably overblown, but it's a useful framework for thinking about if you play out the, the trends we're currently seeing – is that the type of society we want to live in, right? Do we want to have space programs launched by billionaires where they're basically deciding how we want to allocate our public funds? You know, it, it, it's, it's a useful way to think about, you know, how do we want our political systems to be oriented? You know, do we want it to be more like uh, the old feudalist societies where, or feudal societies where you've got uh, barons or nobles or whoever who basically make the decisions on the behalf of, of people who admittedly at the time were far less informed, were, were far um, you know, less capable of making sound decisions. And that's something we have to think about too. Um, a lot of the political response we've seen over the last, uh, call it decade, ha has been in response to the 2008 financial crisis, to um, elites in society making decisions on the behalf of the people and the people aren't stoked about that. Um, if you look at the two most prominent political figures over the last decade, it's, it's Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, and they're both populists, and, and people are responding to these stimuli in different ways based on their value systems, but they're all basically responding to the same thing. Um, do we want a, a cast of, of technocrats making decisions on the behalf of the people? You know, it's, it's part of the same decision, whether they're popularly elected or whether they're elected by way of our capitalist preferences, you kind of have to figure out is, is that the society we want it to be either way. It's not democratic. Um, so. And is there anything, you know, do you think there is anything that can be done about that? Because you know, obviously, you know, we talk about, you know, blockchain and you know, as a way of kind of, you know, decentralizing things economically, but I don't know. I mean, it, it's kind of impossible to take the platform away, you know, from these companies. And in a sense, that's kind of where a lot of the real power is. Like you talk with LeBron James, like that's, you know, controlling, you know, the media in a sense, you know, that's really, I guess, what's mo what's most important. I think what's most, uh, you know, per pervasive about the whole techno-feudalist idea. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think you're exactly right. In, in many ways, these trends are things that 
you know, <laughs> even if you wanted to stop it, how could you? Um, I, I do think there's there's a degree to which we, um, as people generally speaking, but also um, c- certain political groups like libertarians tend to see these um, these structures in society, these trends, as naturalistic in a way where you know if you're if you're messing with how people consume media, you're, you're messing with natural laws. If if you have the government interfere in the the quote unquote natural uh, economic cycle, then then you know you're you're disrupting what would otherwise be. Um, the reality is the way we structure our tax code, the way we allocate property law, all of those are choices. Um, and and so I would reject a little bit the notion that there's there's this sense of naturalism to the way things are. It, it's it's all ultimately a choice. Whether that choice was made you know 100 years ago or last week, we we have structured a society that is is far from accidental. Um, and and you know at the same time many of these trends are super intractable and it's it's hard to imagine how you would even respond to them or, or try to change them. Speaking of trends, how real do you think uh, there is for a transition of reality to the metaverse? Like people are buying properties and selling properties and living life like it actually is here. Like people are buying properties for millions of dollars in the metaverse. Do you think that's actually something that could happen where we transition our reality into the metaverse? Uh, I'm, I'm I'm tempted to to take a bold stance and huh. uh, and and that that will that will be just abysmal in, in retrospect. I, I I don't know. It's it's really interesting to me because it, again it gets, it gets back to one of those thought experiments of like if you could live a life that was better than your current life, and even if you knew it was real or if you didn't know it was real would you choose that instead knowing that it was virtual perhaps even you know willing yourself to forget that it was virtual so you just take this as the real world um i don't know you know th- this is this is something we need to think about as a society to what extent is you know if you can just like download yourself into skyrim and like that's your life for the rest of your life um is is that something we think is morally worthwhile is that a life that's worth living i i, I don't know I, I don't think so for me. Yeah, I don't think so but, either. But there are people who don't necessarily have power in this reality that could go into the metaverse. And you can see how somebody would get into that and think that that's their new reality. Well, and to and go back to life techno- would be better for them. A hundred percent. And as, as if we go back to techno feudalism, like that's going to be more and more people as power and social influence and all of that concentrates in more and more people. I mean, imagine j- just like take Instagram, right? Imagine you could just create a reality where you're not the person who's like scrolling, but you're the Instagram influencer who lives this fabulous life and travels and has the the, the applause of, of millions of people. Who, who would turn that down? Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's again, we're, this is, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure at every moment in history, every every person thought like, wow, this is a really pivotal moment in history. But it, it just strikes me that we're on the precipice of some interesting things, whether it's the metaverse or, or, or biological engineering or whatever else that just completely transcends our, um, our current ability to problem solve around them, um, which is, you know, a generational challenge that, that you guys are going to have to deal with. So good luck. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Bert, would you like to live in the metaverse? Nope. <clears throat> I, I try to uh I try to stay away from the uh 
from the, the metaverse as much as I can. I mean, to the extent that it exists. I'm talking like social media and stuff. I try to stay off that stuff, but I don't know. You know, everyone can do what they want, but yeah, I, th I think we're definitely very far off from a point where like you can actually live in the meta. You know what I'm saying? I mean, now there's social media and stuff. I don't know if we are that far off where it would be reasonable. I mean, you put on, play video games. See no, how yeah, much no. I, I think that's definitely a derivative of it. It would but just in terms be a matter of like, of like if you could transfer, yeah, like personality. We're, ta yeah, we're talking like some like Matrix stuff. I mean, obviously that's a very long time away, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, it's difficult to predict. You got anything, Dietrich? You're a big um, numbers guy. <laughs> that, no. Um, you strike me as a big NFT guy, Dietrich. No, I hate NFTs. But um, I will say, like, why do I hate NFTs? You hate it because it's trendy? <laughs> In some ways, That's why maybe. I hate it, yeah. Aren't they um, blowing up recently? Like, no, the market has basically yeah. crashed, I think. Yeah. They, they, they the whole were, crypto market. Yeah, and then last week was a, was a bad week if you're a crypto enthusiast. Jeez. Yeah, to me, I think that's the type of thing that will, in the future, probably accompany the metaverse, but I think it's just too far off to implement yet, and so there's no point in just holding a bunch of random photos of, like, you know, cyber pixel people in a little, <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a wallet. Um, but I will say, like, with the metaverse, I think all the, all the new VR technology, too, now is, like, sort of creeping up. Um, yeah, you ever, you, ever tried, you, ever, you ever been in VR? Yeah, my so my my brother it's, got it. It's honestly like it, it's. I've never. He got one of the. Immersive. He got one of the Oculus. Immersive. It's really yeah, yeah. It's, it's really cool. He got one of these one of the Oculus headsets. Um, well, it's actually it's now called the Meta, like the Meta yeah. Quest, because yeah, Facebook, Facebook yeah. bought yeah. Oculus, which is not surprising because they're obviously um, into those this whole metaverse thing now, but. It's really cool, and I think for video games, it obviously serves a really good purpose. But I don't know. I think it's 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 a little too easy to imagine people getting sucked into that and just living their lives with a VR headset on in the metaverse, even in the next you know five or ten years. Um, so I think that'll be the first step, and it's a little it's kind of frightening. Well, and there's norms we need to create too, right? I mean, if if you look at let's just say Twitter. Could you imagine a human being saying to another human being in person some of the things that people say to each other on Twitter? <laughs> right? Like never in a million years. But and I think – well, but I – yeah, I will say like the thing with Twitter and all the, all social media is that there's an element of anonymity and you can sort of hide your identity and you could probably do the same on the metaverse. I, I guess easily. that's my point, yeah. right? And so, yeah, if yeah. society yeah. was like that and your, you know, your name was just user 37461, then – um, I don't know. Society would probably be in shambles. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Yeah. I guess to a certain extent, we are already living somewhat of like immersed in technology as far as like influencers, quite literally everything they do is based on other people inside that small knit community interacting with each other and some people more so than others. But to a certain extent, we all are which it, it, it may not be as big of a shift as we think. Well, and we're living in a simulation, right? So hmm. Yeah, 100%. I hope not. <laughs> I don't really care if we are or not. be a pretty bad simulation. Anyway, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the, I'd have, I'd this have a this is the one where about... they, they test out what happens when everything yeah. falls apart. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I'd have a lot of questions about the nature of it, but... All right, well, I think we're running out of time. We have 
Econ class coming up in a few we minutes. We do. Yeah. Um, but before we break, G-Soul, if you've listened to these episodes before, you know that the way we close is that we have a, our guest rate their experience on the podcast, um, you know, on a, on a typical nine-point scale. Um, so could you rate your experience today with us? So, so like nine out of nine would be good? Nine out of yeah, nine, nine would be nine. good. Yeah. yeah, it's like the standard, you know, nine-point scale that we use in society. So, so quantitatively. Including... Yeah, Thrambo. one, two, three, four, five, six, Thrambo, seven, eight, nine. Right, Thrambo, yeah. forgot about yeah. the Thrambo, that's true. Uh, yeah, nine out of nine. And, and qualitatively, I will say, like, the tech set up the inside of the questions, top notch. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was all fair, to be honest. What, what are the, what are the uh, what's the, what, what should we, uh, who should our next guest be? That's what Ooh, I'm saying. I don't know. Yeah. Do, do you guys have a short list? Who's on it? Zarnecki. Zarnecki, yeah, Zarnecki's coming you on. You have to get Zarnecki yeah, on. That that'll would be, be great. a fun one. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm actually going to I'm gonna get pretty fired up for that one. Uh, I don't know. I'm really going to try to pick apart his whole identity because he's a really interesting kid to me, and I honestly do not understand why he is the way he is. And so I'm pretty curious to, like, get an excuse really to, you know, talk to him about that kind of stuff. Well, Bert, I have to be honest with you. That's that's the whole reason I'm here is to try to pick apart your identity. So this, well, this has been know. enlightening. Yeah. Did yeah. you learn anything? <laughs> I, I really don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. All right. That's, yeah, I accomplished my goal. All right. Uh, can we uh, – all right. Adios.